This is a sermon brought to you by Good News Bible Church, where we believe we should love God, love others, and make disciples. We are located in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood and invite you to join our family live every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. as we praise and worship with songs and learn about God through the study of the Bible. You can visit our website at goodnewschi.org. That's goodnewschi.org. Let's turn now to hear what the Word of God has for us this week. Serving the children in this way, planting seeds. Uh, let's pray for them as they head out and pray for the teachers as well and pray for us as we prepare for the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the little ones that you have entrusted to the families of Good News Bible Church. We pray, Lord, that you would bless them today. We pray that they will receive um, the teaching of your word and that it will plant seeds in their heart, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would help them to believe and that you would help them to trust and put their trust in you as Savior if they haven't already. Lord, I pray that you would equip the teachers, Lord. We pray that you would uh, allow them to act upon their preparation and all the study and care that they put into the lesson and the fun and the joy of it as well, and more importantly, those biblical truths. So, so we pray that those would uh, permeate those young minds and, and plant seed in, the, in their hearts, Lord. Thank you for this time that we get to hear the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would just work through us, work through us in our understanding, work through us in the preaching of it as well. Lord, I pray that this would be a time where we could uh, be changed by your words, to be moved by your truth, Lord. We know that this book um, is life, Lord, that this book is living, that the words are real and the words are from you. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to treat it like so. Thank you for our time again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to call Will Acevedo up for a second. So I was just thinking, and Will and I have been thinking, uh, we hang out a lot often around chicken wings and stuff like that. Um, but we were thinking that it'd be very important, like just the time we had right now where we were all praying and we were closing our eyes, and you know, we're kind of like in the zone of worshiping God. And when I was thinking about that, Will had a great idea, and I want him to share a little bit about that. Well, we've been talking about it for a while. Um, we like to like have a security, you know, just for safety. I know we, we worship in peace and that's great, but sometimes, you know, I slip by that door for a reason. I'm always watching that door. So I was just wondering, like, I want to start a security, male, female, and if you're interested, contact me or Carlos, he got my number. So just pull me aside and the more the merrier. And the idea is the idea is twofold. Thanks, Will. Thank you. The idea is twofold. First of all, uh, getting us all here, crossing the street sometimes on California can be a little bit uh, uh, troublesome. We know there used to be something that told people to slow down, but I think that thing got knocked down like three weeks in or something like that. And so we need a little bit of help with that. So we're hoping to have one person always being willing to do that a little bit before. Uh, before and after, and then we want one person who just basically is just aware. Now, we're not asking for all this, anything crazy, just one person that's just kind of aware for us and just kind of looking at, looking out for us as we, you know, close our eyes and worship and pray and things like that. I think it's a, I think it's a great idea, and so we'll be, we'll be sending out some information about that. 
Also, today you will be receiving a gift. Uh, as I'm preaching this sermon, I'm going to be watching everyone's behavior. And if everyone behaves well, they'll receive this. I'm just kidding. I do be watching y'all, though. I know when everyone talks and stuff, I talk about you at the elder meeting. But that's a whole other thing. But this pen's kind of cool because if you press this thingy, it lights up our name. You see that? Ben Toro saw this, and he was super impressed. We said, all right, we'll buy them, Ben. So we bought it. So this is for each and every one of you all. And the idea is it does give you a great way to talk about where you fellowship for church. It says Good News Bible Church and has the information there. And, of course, if you use them in a godly manner, like giving them out to someone for the sake of inviting them, then we can restore your pen and resupply you. And so, yeah, everyone, you'll get that besides the great, great time we have afterwards, okay? So the love of everyone would come. Let's give a hand clap to everyone who did that. Okay. I know there's a lot of talk in the, in the news everywhere around the world about pronouns, but I don't know if you all know, but Martin Luther had an idea around pronouns. He said that Christianity is a religion of possessive pronouns. So, for example, someone could say Christ is a Savior. Jesus is a Lord. But Martin Luther says that Christianity is possessive, what that means is you would say Christ is my Savior. Christ is my Lord. You see, it's, it's a possessive pronoun. And if you think about it, even the devil could say Christ is a Savior. But the devil could not say Christ is my Savior. And so we believe here at Good News Bible Church that Christ is our Savior. However, we know that we live in a world where many do not. And there's different reasons for rejection. Some of them might be well thought out. Some of them, some of them might be silly like this. I remember um, I have a real funny friend. I won't talk too much about him because I'll, I'll start going off on a tangent. But I have a real funny friend, and we went to the Humble Park uh, Beach some people call it the lagoon, or there's other nicknames that are not appropriate for church setting. But we went to the Humble Park Beach, and when we were there, my friend noticed that one of the lifeguards uh, did not look as nice as all the other lifeguards. And so he told me, Carlos, if I drown, make sure that lifeguard is on break. I was like, oh, wow, that was super mean. So he was going to reject that saving. He did not think that he wanted to be saved by that. And it's a silly story, but it's one that often is very profound when acted out upon. You see, some people want a savior that eerily acts and behaves just like themselves or doesn't disagree with anything they already do. And so there are selfish reasons, there are silly reasons of Jesus being rejected as a savior or as their savior. So some rejections are just bad choices, but others have consequence in this life and more importantly, in the next. And I was just thinking, what are some of the reasons nowadays and historically that people have rejected Jesus? Here are the four that I researched. Number one, many people do not think they need a savior. They don't think they need a savior. They believe that they determine how they will be saved. In theory, kind of functioning as their own 
Savior. So they do not believe that they need a Savior. They see themselves as their own Savior. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, sir. Second reason is the fear of rejection. When people put their trust in Jesus, there could be a fear of rejection of what others think. Others who do not put their trust in Jesus. So there could be a fear of social rejection. Maybe your friend group no longer wants to be with you. This deters people from believing and receiving Christ as their Savior. You know, the main question there is, how would I look? How would I look if I was a, a Jesus follower? How would I look? Another reason is, some people believe that the things that the world already offers, the present offerings that the world gives us, they believe those to be more appealing than anything eternal. What, what they see now is so appealing to them, they don't, they don't think about anything else but that. And the question they often ask is, I think my stuff and the things I possess and my lifestyle is just better. It's just better when than what people say Jesus offers, or what the scriptures say people, uh, the scripture says Jesus offers. And then lastly, and this is a very, very common one, many people reject Jesus because they resist the, 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 the tender pushings of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is drawing people to Jesus, and they do not respond to those gracious nudges. They don't respond to conviction. They ignore it. And over time, it becomes something they no longer are interested in. If you keep saying, if someone keeps saying not now over and over, it eventually becomes not ever. So little, little rejections over and over and over become a pattern of rejection. Then they become a lifestyle. So today we're going to read about our Savior Jesus being rejected. And this one's pretty sad. Because his rejection happens in, in today's story in his own hometown. So in the own people that he was around. Isaiah prophesied this, that Jesus would be rejected. And sadly, he was rejected amongst his own people. Let's join in Luke 4, 16. At Good News Bible Church, we read out of the English Standard Version, if you want to match that. And we're going to hear the story of Jesus' rejection in his hometown. We'll read up to 22 right now. It says, And he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim Liberty to the captives and recovering, and, the, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Right away, you might have missed it, but I got to call it out. We called it out last week because the scripture started very similarly. It says, Jesus entered the synagogue. Remember last week we heard Jesus entering the synagogue. 
This week it says, Jesus entered his synagogue as was his custom. Remember, Jesus has nothing to learn from a Bible study at the synagogue. He has nothing to gain in that way. But it was Jesus' custom to come to a gathering of believers who were doing two things. They were saying prayers and they were teaching or reading the scriptures. And so it is very normative for every believer to attend, to attend and to go to a place where other believers gather for the sake of reading the word and reading, I'm sorry, reading the scriptures and prayer. And I want you all to notice that Jesus, when he gets an opportunity to do something in church, I want you to notice what Jesus, the son of God, like our, our number one person to emulate, what does he do? He reads from the scriptures. I know there's some people that probably, probably want to be at a church where it might be a little bit hyper or there might be a little bit jokier or things like that. But Jesus gets the opportunity to go to the synagogue, as was his custom. And what does he read from? He's from the scriptures. It wasn't a 50-50. 50, what appeals to you and your lifestyle and what's going on in our culture and in the other 50, how it relates to that. The basis of his talking, the basic of what went on in a good synagogue, and the basis of what goes on in a good church is a focus on the scriptures and prayer. And I just got to tell you all that as long as this body is breathing and I'm the church, I'm the pastor of this church here, that's what it's going to be focused on. And I just need to tell you all that, that it will always be focused on prayer and focused on the preaching of God's word. No substitute needed. No substitute needed. Jesus went to a public gathering to worship. He went to what we would call now, he went to the gathering, a church, right? Verse 17 talks about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is like towards the beginning of when he started. One of the first things that happened before he got into ministry is he was tempted by the devil. So this is coming after he rejected the devil. And I just think it's really neat that as soon as he goes through rejecting the devil, what ends up happening next? His, his ministry begins. I think there's something in there for us. That part of our strength and beginning of ministry, if you ever are starting a ministry at Good News Bible Church or you're leading a ministry or, or you're working with your children at home or cousins or uncles or whoever, we have to reject Satan. We have to think about the Lord's Prayer and how it tells us to lead us, you know, lead me not into temptation, right? Deliver me from evil. I, all of these things really speak to there's something we need to reject so that we can cling to as well. And so we should do the same. It's good to do so. Jesus begins his earthly ministry as well by reading the scriptures. Isn't that neat? He gets up amongst his people and reads the scriptures. And what did he read? He read a prophecy. And the prophecy was related to him. And the prophecy is about him coming to the earth to dwell and be with us. You, you, you might want to say, well, what do I tell people? What, how do I act around people? What do I say about the Bible? Well, think about what Jesus always says. He speaks to him coming and having a reason for coming into this world. He talks about him saving. He's talking about the good news. Now, Jesus reads about his ministry. What, what, is, what do we hear from it? First, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon him. All Jesus is saying right now is, I am indeed the Messiah. I'm the Savior. 
I am the Savior. He also says that he was anointed. And this idea of anointed is when someone is given the power to complete a task. So he's anointed for a reason. How many of you all know that when you're saved, you're not just anointed. You're anointed for a reason. That's why you have spiritual giftings and spiritual leanings that you can then act upon. And you have the community and the people that you are around. All of that is for a reason. And so Jesus isn't just Jesus for no reason. He Jesus anointed, set apart to do a task, which is living a holy life so that he could be that sacrificial lamb on the cross for the salvation of our sins. Jesus talks about a little bit about what the work was. What was the work? Look at what it is. First he says, proclaim the good news to the poor. You have to, if you want to be like Jesus, you have to proclaim the good news to the poor, to those who may be poor spiritually, to those who might be poor for real. This may be a little controversial, but I know that if I, if people put themselves in settings where there's more people who are spiritually poor or actually poor, then you get more opportunities to proclaim. So look at your lifestyle and ensure that you have a lifestyle that allows you to be around people who need to hear the gospel. I guess what I'm saying is you cannot have a life where you become only, only have a lifestyle where you're only around only Christians all the time. That's good for us to be with our brothers and sisters, but we need to ensure that we have access to people who do not know the truth in the gospel. Just look at Jesus's perfectly lived life. Look at his good deeds. They were often done among the lowest in society, people that, uh, uh, people that were often rejected by others, the sick, the lame, the people who did not know, who needed help. And so we need to make sure that our life is accurately proportioned. And I know a lot of you all say, but I'm raising my kids, or you know, a lot of people say there's a lot of reasons for that, or this is where I am in my life. Uh, I'm not going to argue that. All I'm going to say is you look at the life of Jesus and you see that he proportioned himself to be around people who need help, who needed his support, who needed to hear the gospel. We need to do the same. So proclaiming good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and notice the order. I, I, I know so many places they do, they do so many things for people in the neighborhood. And by the way, I was a kid in the neighborhood. You all were kids in your neighborhood. And many churches did all these different things. But I noticed that some of the other youth centers, so for example, when I was growing up as a kid, there was Inner City Impact, and then there was another boys and girls club called Barreto Boys Clubs. I don't know if you all ever heard of that one. So you got these two, right? They both had nice gyms, and they had nice people. But what was different about Inner City Impact? Well, the proclaiming of Jesus. They shared the good news. But there are other boys and girls clubs. So if the church or your lifestyle functions as any other good person, they're not going to really know that because there's a lot of other people doing nice things, too, for their own salvation. I, I, I'm a math coach. I go around to 34 different schools. I meet a lot of people who do a lot more service projects than me. Like they literally get together with their friends and go volunteer, right? Like this is normative 
uh, for people who don't know God, it's a great way for them to calm their conscience from their lifestyle of sin. So they have, they, they help people. I don't know if you all know that. And they raise a lot of money. And so I want to let you all know that Jesus didn't just come to be a social welfare. He came to preach the good news, which then just attached with that and connected with that is the betterment of people. Even if it's not in this life, but certainly in the next. Salvation should be the first thing. People getting saved. That's what it is. When I was a little kid in the neighborhood, I didn't need, I didn't need all the other things. Um, I was okay without them, believe it or not. When you grow up with not having much, you kind of learn how to figure that out. And then you, people always thought, well, you probably feel bad about yourself. Let me tell you, you don't because you know what? There was like five or six other people had it worse than you. So you thought you were in the middle, even though you weren't. So I'm telling you all, it's, it's not about addressing all of that. It's about bringing the gospel, and the gospel speaks to all of that anyway. You don't have to switch the order. It also says the work is the recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed. Think about oppression, blindness. These are all consequences and the effects of sin. And then lastly, he says, the work is to proclaim the year of the Lord's Savior. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. I love this quote by Morrison. Morrison wrote, Thankfully, Jesus didn't come to only preach deliverance or even to only bring deliverance. Jesus came to be deliverance for us. Isn't that amazing? He didn't have, a, he didn't have like the plan and figured it out and all that. He, he was the plan. He is the plan. And Jesus now has saved the people for himself, a church body for himself, church bodies for himself that are then to act similar and emulate his behavior. Verses 20 to 22, Jesus flat out claims to be the anointed one. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy. And notice the initial reaction. Eyes were kind of fixed. People are marveled. And there's some questions. Join me in verse 23, and we continue the narrative. Verses 23 through 27, it reads, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, this is Jesus, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. Six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So right away, soon as Jesus kind of finishes, the situation gets very, very tense. You see, Jesus was very familiar to these people. They grew up around him. They saw him. They knew who his dad was, his family. His, he probably had a crazy cousin. You know, they're like, oh, that's Paco's cousin. You know, he probably knew he had a weird cousin. Okay. And then he, Jesus, gets up and says, I'm the one that Isaiah prophesied about. So these people had a natural inclination like we've we seen him grow up. So there was disbelief. 
And Jesus knows that they heard about his reputation. See, by now, he already had done some healings in Capernaum. So right away, they're like, well, we might not believe he is who he says he was, or is, I'm sorry. But we know he did some miracles somewhere else. So what do they expect of him? You coming to your hometown, you coming back to us, what do they want from him? They don't want salvation. They just want the miracles. They want the blessings without having to change their lives or have someone be their savior. You see, they desire that Jesus do the same thing for them that they heard that he did from others. The impulse is that they want to get stuff from Jesus, not necessarily getting Jesus. And we think about that. We think about that in terms of um, do people want to come and hear about God or they want to come and hear about what they want to hear about, right? And so that determines who comes to Jesus versus who comes to what Jesus could kind of give me. So Jesus engages them by saying that no prophet is acceptable in their hometown. You see, Jesus knew and understood that it was easy for them to doubt the power and work of God among those most familiar. Uh, I don't know if you all have had someone in your family who didn't seem to be on the right track as someone who's going to become a Christian, but then they did. It really trips people out close to them, and they're like, no, for real? And they're like, yeah. And then they start living their life, and they think, oh, this is going to be two months. And then it's three months and ten months, and this person's been changed. But that initial thinking, like, I'm familiar with someone and, their, and how they grew up and stuff, and then you see them totally change. Jesus understands that that's a real thing. It was easier for them to doubt him and reject him because he seemed so normal. So what Jesus does, he gives them an example, and that example was Elijah. You see, the audience wanted special favors. They wanted stuff from Jesus. He was in their hometown, and it, all that mattered to them is they wanted to see him do work for them. He already had done some work for people who were not Jews, who were Gentiles. So they especially thought, since we're Jewish and we're from his hometown, we should get these benefits. So Jesus makes two points. First thing he says is, the fact that they did not receive Jesus had nothing to do with Jesus, but everything to do with them. So Jesus made a point of saying he was truly from God, and then they did not receive him. Their rejection said more about them than it did about Jesus, and it's still true today. Secondly, it showed that God's miraculous power operates in unexpected and sovereign ways. The way they were treating Jesus was as if his abilities and his miracles and his ministry was for sale. But Jesus isn't for sale. Jesus is like gas. It don't go on sale, right? Gas don't go on sale. Um, I always wondered if there'd be a value meal for gas. You know, I would love to buy that, but there never is, right? Jesus is actually, Jesus is actually God. And so this is the two stories he tells them. First, he tells about Elijah going to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. So this was a woman who was a widow. And during this time, there was a famine. A lot of people were struggling. Lots of people were struggling. But God sent Elijah just to this widow. You see what point Jesus is trying to make? That Jesus comes to whoever, that God comes to whoever God wants to come to. That God has given a way for all to come, but at times he comes in a more purposeful way, and God is allowed to come the way God wants to go. And Jesus is saying, I'm the anointed one, I'm the same way. 
If I go to Capernaum and help them, I'm going to Capernaum to help them. And if I come here and help you all, I can help you all. It is God, it is Jesus who saves. And some of us want Jesus to act and function and God to act and function in a different way. You know, some people say, why, why doesn't God just save them all? Right? There's all these questions that we come up with. He gives another example. Secondly, he showed that God's miraculous power, I'm sorry, he had the second story. He had Naaman, right? So Naaman heard a word that he could be healed. So you got this person who was not Jewish, heard that he could be healed. So what he did, he responded in faith, and he went. He did something about it and actually went to Israel. And Naaman obeyed the word of the prophet to wash in the Jordan seven times. I don't know if you all remember this story. And he obeyed. He washed seven times just like he was told with humility, and he was healed. So Jesus comes as the anointed one, and just because they were from the hometown, they don't get the family discount. They have to come the way Jesus asked them to come. And he comes to them the way he comes, as Savior and Lord. Jesus' ministry was indeed directed by obedience to his Father. And there's a lot of cross-references for that. One is Luke 4, 28-29. Jesus' ministry was directed by the Father, and he obeyed. Let's look at the conclusion of this story, verses 28 through 29. We talked about the tension rising. Here it comes to a pinnacle. It says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove them out of the town and brought them to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Some of you all who are Christians who right away went back to your family and started telling them about God and they threw you off the sofa, you know, they just, threw, they just tried to throw Jesus off a cliff, so you're in good company, okay? So verse 28, the situation turns, I mean, horrific. It's almost like mob-like, right? In the context of being in a synagogue, imagine, it's like a, a fight in a sense coming or rising up here. That would be like I've never seen that in a church, right? I see people arguing, but that's everywhere, right? Um, people got kids and stuff. That happens all the time. But if you just saw like a flat-out like altercation in a church, that's very rare. And so you can tell that people are filled with fury. People are filled with anger. And they were angry to be told that there was something wrong with them, that their request for a miracle was denied, and they weren't going to get what they felt they deserved being close to him in a sense by knowing him as he grew up. So Jesus implied also by those two examples that Jesus was actually loving, that God was actually loving Gentiles as well, which would have offended them too. So what did they try to do? First thing, they turned their emotion of wrath into action. They were seriously angry. They wanted to actually hurt Jesus. The Bible tells us that they rose up. Now, growing up in a the neighborhood, there was always like talk and banter and messing with each other. But when someone got up with clenched fists, you're like, oh, it's just it's another level. <laughs> it's another level. And you probably wish you would have said you know, less or more, depending on how good a fighter you were. But these people got up. They're ready to do something. That, that connotes action, right? The Bible tells us that they drove him out of town. They drove him to the pinnacle of where their area was. In a sense, they were kicking him out of his hometown. That's like kicking out me from Humble Park. I've been here since I was like negative three years old, right? It'd be really, really tough to be booted out of an area that you 
felt was your home and where you grew up in. And notice that they did this communally. They did this as a group. It's not like a couple people didn't like you. Like your, the, your very hometown synagogue was trying to get you away. And it says that they desired to throw Jesus off a cliff. Now, I don't know if you all know, if you, if you do some research about the terrain and stuff, many of these cliffs weren't really big. But what they did is most of the times when someone got thrown off a cliff, it was the start of their stoning. So, you know, stoning is when you would throw boulders, rock, not boulders, but big rocks and rocks at people until, until they died. Uh, that could take a while. So what they often did is they started the stoning by pushing them off a ledge. So that initial fall causes a lot of the damage. And so that was their intention, was to probably eventually stone him if they're following what was the normal pattern of that time. And what I'm saying here, guys, is that Jesus, he did end up doing a miracle. I don't know if you all noticed that. He did end up doing a miracle. The miracle was that they're there, they're all there to do this to him, and somehow he escaped. And I've always, I remember when I was a kid, I was like, this, he always escaping or walking right through the crowd. And that's some of the things that we know probably are just miraculous, and I don't have the answer to that. And you could go ahead and study it, but we really don't know. Uh, no one really knows. It just he, he got away. Jesus was rejected as their Savior. And I want to, this really, uh, I'm not going to lie, when I was preparing for this one, I, I cried a little bit because I think, about, I think about Jesus' rejection. And I think about times when I've been rejected. Maybe you could think about times when you've been rejected. And we know this can really hurt. But imagine if you truly, truly were perfect and never did any sin, yet still being rejected. I know I always feel more hurt when I'm rejected, when I've been behaving really well and I get rejected. Then I'm like, man, I got straight. You know, I mean, one time my mom yelled at me when I came back with a straight A report card. I'm like, what's going, what's going on here? Then my brother got C's and D's and he got to eat first. You know, this, this crazy life, right? But we know that Jesus being rejected must have been extremely hurtful. You see, rejection is a, it's a source of pain for a lot of us. In fact, some of our young rejection still affects us now, you know. But for me, it's a big comfort that the Bible tells us that we don't have a high priest who doesn't know what we're going through, that we have a high priest that understands us, that he has endured rejection. And therefore, when we pray for help and support in dealing with rejection to the Father, Jesus can advocate on our behalf to the Father and intercede and help us with our rejection. When I look at this life on earth and all Jesus endured, he can actually identify with us with this idea of rejection. But more importantly, we can identify with him. Because a lot of time we read the Bible, we go this way. But really, this is, part, this is the part where you read the Bible and you say, I go this way. I can identify with Jesus' rejection. Imagine, identify with what he went through. I think we always think of Jesus as the rose back from the dead Jesus and, you know, he's in heaven now and things like that, right? Uh, but we do know that when he lived here on earth, he went through a lot. And we can identify what he went through. And I like what um, this lady from, uh, I met her one time. She's from the Orchard Church. She wrote this. She said, but Jesus redeemed us from the curse by taking it upon himself. To redeem us is to buy back, to accept, to choose. 
That is the opposite of rejecting, rejection. By the power of the gospel, we have received the spirit of adoption. That's Romans 8, 15. That's permanent, binding acceptance. We know now that nothing can separate us from the Father's love. Man's rejection is made so small in light of the truth that through the gospel, we have God's eternal love and acceptance unconditionally. Isn't that amazing? Jesus came as a savior and was rejected, but yet he has provided a way for us to be accepted. Isn't that amazing? So how should we live? We should live knowing that Jesus' followers, if they're going to be like Jesus, they're going to be rejected. Generally, if you're doing it right, you'll be rejected by the same type of people that rejected Jesus. Now, if you're just being rejected overall, that's, that's another thing. We can talk about that in counseling. But if you're acting like Jesus and you're being rejected, then that's something that we know that the Bible has prepared us with and lets, lets us know about. If they rejected Jesus... Christian, what do we do? We do the opposite of rejection. We embrace Jesus. And what do, what do we need to do? We need to emulate or model our lifestyle after Jesus. Others-minded, loving God in the scriptures, taking time away to be filled with the Spirit, and then coming back. Notice that Jesus spent a lot of time with other people. Jesus talked to people that didn't know him. You just go in the scriptures and look for the verbs of Jesus and start incorporating those. Another thing you do is you live a life indwelt and helped by the Holy Spirit. You know, be filled with the Spirit, praying. Another thing you do is you, you go to synagogue. <laughs> you go to a, a Bible-based church. And you listen to Bible-based music. That's a whole other sermon. I think more importantly, you live by a, you try to go to and be at a church family that's Bible driven in general. And when this happens, there will be some rejection. Scripture says that Jesus is not a high priest, though, he can sympathize with us. I think about Jesus being able to sympathize. And the reason why Jesus knows how to sympathize so well with us and be that, be that savior for us in the, in, in the big and the little is because of what he went through as well. And if you think about it, the whole reason of the good news is that two people at one point, Adam and Eve, rejected, rejected God. And we know that even before God gives Adam and Eve the consequence, he curses the snake and lets them know he already has the first hint of the gospel that through the seed of the woman, there will be someone who would destroy Satan. Isn't that amazing? Our rejected Savior is someone willing to save, even though our rejected Savior was rejected. And the gospel is covered with Jesus being rejected. And that's the beauty of the dual nature of our Savior. He was fully God, but he chose to bring himself as a human and deal with the very things that we struggle with. And one of the most human things about us is our reaction to, 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 um, to being rejected. Uh, I've been a teacher, I was a teacher for 19 years, and you would see some kids, if they got 
let's say there was 100 questions, like before they used to do this constitution test and they used to have 100 questions. And it was like, oh, 100 questions. Um, I remember one kid got one question wrong. And what did that kid talk about for 10 minutes after everyone got their test back? I can't believe I got that question wrong. Rejection is very tough on us. But we take solace in knowing that Jesus was rejected and can help us. By the way, have you ever thought about who rejected Jesus? First of all, his family, his own brothers. Not all of them, but his own brothers. Some of his brothers did. His hometown, we just learned about that. People you grew up with rejecting you. Jesus was rejected also by those who used to love him. We know the famous story about Judas. How about Peter? Right? And he even told Peter, like, yo, this is going to happen. And it still happened, right? And then ultimately, I don't know if you all thought about this, but what was Jesus' greatest rejection? It was when he was on the cross. And the father, the father turned away, right? Rejected him. Very sorrowful, even to death, forsaken. I want to close with this. There was a preacher named Campbell Morgan. He was one of 150 people who were trying to become a minister or get into the ministry in Wesleyan. Now, he passed all his exams, but then he had to face something called the trial sermon. You had to preach a sermon in this big old auditorium that wasn't fully filled, but you had this big old auditorium, so you can imagine how scared he was, right? It, it could seat thousands, but he only had about 75 people who were doing it, and he was, uh, he was once one among them, right? When Morgan stepped into the pulpit, the room, the critical eyes, looking around, it messed him up. He didn't do too well. Two weeks later, Morgan's name appeared on a list of all the ministers who were rejected and weren't going to be able to be in that ministry set up. He was rejected. His daughter-in-law, who wrote a book about him called A Man of the Word, it says that Campbell Morgan immediately, when he was, found out he was rejected, he sent an old school email, right? He sent a telegram, and he said, rejected, very dark, everything seems. Still, God knows best. That's what he sent, his, sent to his dad. He's like, Dad, I got rejected. You know, I, I, I didn't make it. After all those exams and all, he didn't make it. But his father quickly replied and said, son, you are rejected on earth, but you are accepted in heaven, dad. Isn't that amazing? Every time you face rejection, we count it all joy because we are accepted on earth. Slash hashtag dad. Isn't that amazing? God the father. What can people's rejection do to us if an almighty God has and is ultimately for us. Be rooted in Jesus and be a verbal and living witness to any not yet believers that you encounter. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your perfectly lived life. God, we thank you that you sent your son to show us and to Deal with the things that we went through so that your son can be a perfect high priest, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus' work, 
his lived out life and his death on the cross and resurrection, that we now can be accepted by you, Lord, accepted in heaven, that you are our Father. And so, Lord, we pray that you would ask, uh, I mean, that you would have us, and we ask you for the power to live like Jesus, Lord, to turn to you in rejection, Lord, to know that it's coming, Lord, but to be stout and faithful to the scriptures, to be stout and faithful in our prayers and to be stout and faithful in speaking and letting others know and giving testimony and praise to who you are, Lord. Help us to open our mouths to not be afraid, no matter what the culture is talking about or where the culture is leaning. Help us to be empowered by you, Lord, to speak the truth in love. And Lord, help us to orient, orient our life, not around Netflix or games or hobbies, Lord, but to orient our life around you, first and foremost. And God, we pray that you would help us to do this as a church family. In Jesus' name. This has been a presentation of Good News Bible Church, where we equip people to love God, love others, and make disciples. To help support our mission, please visit our online giving portal through our website at www.goodnewschai.org.